Welcome to Reroute. This is Gavin Wilhite. Today we get to talk to Zarina Agnew. Zarina is a neuroscientist as well as an activist and community organizer. She has managed a number of intentional co-living houses here in San Francisco, and she's also created programs for restorative justice and to reintegrate previously incarcerated individuals. We'll be talking to her both about what steps we can take to restore some justice to our justice systems, as well as how best to get different humans happily living under the same roof together, and how we might apply those lessons to other aspects of society. So sit forward, listen in, and enjoy our conversation with Zarina Agnew. Welcome to Reroute. I am Gavin Wilhite, and I am here today with Zarina Agnew. Zarina, welcome. Thank How are you. you. Doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you very much. Fantastic. Well, I'd love to hear just a little bit. I know you are a, uh, a woman of many interests, and we have uh, had a number of good conversations over the years. Uh, <laughs> but I'd love to sort of hear, yeah, kind of like how you're you're thinking about your work these days. Uh, what's been kind of top of mind and, and what sort of things you've been looking at recently? Mm, yeah, that's um, a great question. <laughs> I think uh, the, uh, you know, the last year has changed all of our trajectories, I imagine, in new ways. So um, I'm professionally trained as an academic neuroscientist um, and have kind of considered myself an experimentalist in many aspects of my life. Uh, and so you can see that play out in, in a number of different ways. But I think um, uh, exploring new ways of being and exploring new questions is the common thread under the what seem to be a really diverse range of things that I've done in my life. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think uh, about actually, I just left my, I just sort of formally left my academic position at the beginning of the pandemic, and um, in the last few years, I have been. Um, uh, running a, a social science hotel, studying social science in the wild, uh, setting nice. up experimental communities, uh, and prototyping new kinds of institutions and social formations. That's fantastic. And I'm sure we'll touch on a bunch of those things. I, I wonder to start, what was the, you said it was a, a social hotel? Is that what it was? A social, social science, science hotel? Social science hotel, yeah. Yeah, that's what right. That so, um, well, you know, I ended up sort of taking a break from uh, neuroscience because I was really um, fascinated by the, you know, the science of brains, uh, plural. Mm. Uh, and that's really difficult to study in uh, neuroscience just because of the way that w where we are with technology. Um, and, uh, and so I sort of like discovered that really where this lies is, is social science, behavioral science, uh, and data science um, and through my explorations just sort of discovered that I really wanted to look at how groups of humans behave in the wild in, in situ as we say in science um, mm. in their natural environment and so um, I wanted to set up a, a sort of place where you could study humans and how they interact with each other um, in a sort of naturalistic setting and so uh, we had a hotel 22 bedroom hotel that we transitioned into a social science hotel about uh, two years ago and the idea was that guests could come through and participate in experiments or learn about social science or engage in citizen science. And we could run uh, replications of uh, sort of lab-based data, lab-based experiments um, in naturalistic settings. And uh, so that's what we did. It was really fun. That's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> I love to see. Yeah, were there, any, um, were there any initial learnings or takeaways from that? Well, unfortunately, COVID shut, shut, shut us down completely. Oh, I see. <laughs> um, so yeah. yeah, it was really, really tough. We'd done all the hard work to, um, to rebrand and get off the ground. Um, we did run our first uh, set of experiments on generosity, which was really interesting. And I think, you know, in the beginning of setting up a new laboratory or a new set of experiments, you really have to prove that you can um, get things going. And so over the first year, we really focused on making sure that we had proof of principle that people would come and participate that people wanted to come and stay in a building yep. like this uh generating the sort of desire to come and stay in something like this and that was all very successful we ran a series of uh real life experiments called uh, experimental dinners where people came and had the experience of being in a restaurant but actually uh what was happening was they were having um a uh, an experiment done they're participating in an experiment and uh, but at the same time it felt very real to them uh, and so that was really fun we ran that on 60 people 
Um, and for me, the take home there really was that you can do this. You can uh, have humans participate in yeah. things that don't feel like a laboratory experiment. I don't know if you've ever been to <laughs> participate in, a, in a, <laughs> uh, an experiment. It feels very dry. Yeah, I can imagine. It, like it, it's hard to imagine it not uh, affecting something, right? The, the fact that you know that you're in a, a building and it feels very much not like the a normal experience. Yeah, and you know you're being observed. And one thing we know about humans is they change their behavior when they know they're being observed. And so, the question of how humans really behave uh, uh, in their natural environments is still very much up for grabs. That's very cool. Well, I know one of the um, one of the ways that that you and I got connected was through sort of uh, community living and co living. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's I know it's been fascinating for me to see like what that has has taught me about. Um, uh, living with other humans and other human minds. And mm-hmm. I know you have a kind of extensive background in that and have helped uh, to run and operate a bunch of different spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, are there uh, particular things? I know there's probably a, a long list, but are there any things that sort of stand out that you have uh, felt like you've learned about uh, living with other humans through those experiences? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, again, the thread here for me that's exciting is that... Um, I'm sort of tired of looking at how humans are and I'm interested in how humans could be. Uh, mm. You know, we're, we're extremely adaptable yeah. species. We've we've um, found ourselves all over the world, you know, in, in tons of different environments, tons of different social structures. Um, even in our short existence, we've had lots of different sort of economic and political systems. We're extremely adaptive creatures. And so the question mm. then is, like, what could we be like? And... Um, you know, I think often in science we study what, what the way things are, not how things could be. And uh, for me, community spaces and community living are a really fascinating way of getting at how humans could be. Um, so it's very difficult to change yourself as a lone creature, you know, as a single node. Um, there are some things you can do. You can go to therapy. You can learn a new language. There's, you know, there's certain things you can change about yourself. But it's difficult to get at um, collectivity or sociality without having a group and community living intentional communities are places where uh, humans come together to live out some set of shared values hopes or dreams and together you can create a completely different life you can create a completely different social logic you can different uh, different ways of making decisions governance systems uh, ways of forming norms uh, financial models all these things are up for grabs, and so they're sort of microcosms of how we could operate on a much larger scale, whether that's at the municipal level, uh, the national or the post-national level. I think uh, until we're w- willing to explore um, the different ways in which humans could operate together, um, I think we're going to be stuck uh, in a pretty um, early phase of humanity. Yeah, that's. I feel like one of the, the really key questions there is how we take... Um, what feels like so on one side we kind of have the, the the sort of small scale uh, like you were talking about with you know one house and one of the things I always find a little amusing there is there's this uh, a truism or a quote around you become like your five closest friends you become like the average mm-hmm. of your five closest friends mm-hmm. uh, and it's kind of fascinating how with community living um, y- those five closest people can you can all of a sudden you know switch at the drop of a hat as you join a new house mm-hmm. and and to see how that affects you know you and and sort of the way that you carry yourself and your beliefs and all that kind of stuff and uh so that's sort of at that, that very small scale or at the, at the individual level and it, it seems like a very important question on how do we um take the impact that community living can have on lives and scale it as you say to uh, to cities to communities to civilizations do you have any thoughts on how we do that or what aspects of that might be able to translate? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, so, you know, I think one of the, the troubles actually in our modern world is that we we focus a lot on very specific kinds of success and scalability is one of those. So, we, we you know, we sort of tend to say, well, if this isn't scalable, what's the point? If this isn't generalizable, what's the point? And I think um, there's some things that are really missed in that framing which is to say that like even if you produce something that is very difficult to produce again you still prove you've proven and shown that that thing can happen uh, it might be very difficult mm-hmm. to replicate but it, you've shown that it can happen 
Um, and uh, and it's okay if that thing uh, only can exist locally or in a specific moment in time or in specific situations. It's still useful to know that that's a thing that you can do. So I think, uh, you know, uh, one of the critiques I often hear about um, sort of prefigurative projects is that they only work at a small scale. And what do you do when you get past the sort of mythical Dunbar's number um, mm. Uh, and so on and so forth. And I think that's... Do you mind uh, just uh, explaining that for folks who might not know what Dunbar's number is? Uh, Dunbar's number um, is a really fascinating um, uh, field of research. So Robin Dunbar is, um, I think, a primatologist or maybe an anthropologist in in the UK. Uh, and they did a very interesting study where they looked at the brain sizes, I think, or maybe the scalp sizes of uh, various primates, and they correlated that with social uh, the size of the social group. And they sort of found a rough correlation between the size of the brain and the um, uh, size of the social group. Uh, and from that sort of arc that they drew across a bunch of different primate species, they extrapolated what the size of the human social group might be that works for us. Uh, for mm-hmm. Homo sapiens, uh, and it was about 200, I think, or maybe 250, about 200, somewhere in that range, um, was where, if you sort yeah. of draw the graph uh, past the other side, uh, is where humans uh, would live, because obviously it's very difficult actually to see what size um, uh, of social group humans live in, because they they do a ton of different things. Um, it's often, I think, misthought of as um, some sort of like um, proven number, uh, but it's very much not proven. Uh, it's also the case that those other primate species um, engage in, I think, something like 40% social grooming time in order to main, maintain <clears throat> uh, those uh, social ties. Uh, and so, you know, there's all sorts of um, uh, constraints with which you can interpret this data. But nonetheless, it's, it points to a, it's a sort of symbol of an important point, which is that there's presumably some limit to the size of a social group in which uh, a homo sapiens can um, sort of, you know, authentically and meaningfully collaborate. I think we don't know what that is. And I think, you know, uh, we are primarily developing technological tools to try and maximize that. And I, you know, like in lots of ways, we're doing a terrible job, <laughs> but in lots of ways, we're doing a great job. I mean, Facebook, you know, um, as, as sort of like uh, dystopian as it is, has, has, mm-hmm. has changed that in many ways for the better. Uh, you know, you can stay in touch with extraordinary numbers of people in very sort of loose ways, which is not not meaningful, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, but sorry, to get back to your, your question, which is um, how do we take what we've learned from intentional communities to, to larger scales? I think a different way of looking at it is um, can these spaces, can these small spaces uh, where you live in high density and you build strong social ties be places where you learn to be... Um, an active subject in a different kind of future so uh, not necessarily can you suddenly do this with 500 people but can you can you take the skills you've learned and apply them to different social settings maybe not um Hmm. or can you take the 10 people that you've lived with for the last five years and put them in a different social setting and will they pick up the mantle and carry on as normal you know um if you put them in space will they operate in the same way or do the environmental constraints change things um uh if you um put them in under stressful situations, can they still collaborate or does their their collaboration and pro-social uh, sort of skills fall apart under different environmental constraints? Um, and so I think there is other ways for scalability and generalizability that aren't quite captured in just let's add more people and see if it holds. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's uh, it's interesting you you pointing out the uh, like transference of skills that you learn in community living. I know for myself, one of the ones that amused me was I was um, like I was starting to interview people, uh, you know, to join uh, my last startup, and I was laughing because I was like, "Oh, I've totally done this before because I've interviewed candidates for our house." <laughs> and then, I, and then I sort of started laughing because I was like, "Wow, the uh, the the interviews were way more intense for that. Like those would last <laughs> like weeks or months, you know. And now we're spending a few Absolutely. hours, yeah, yeah, interviewing someone for a job." <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 that's definitely true, actually. And, you know, and in the same way, you know, interviewing people for community houses is subject to the same biases. And, you know, right. there's, there's much to be learned uh, from uh, private industry uh, about how to overcome that, I think, that we probably haven't done in the intentional communities. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, which is a sort of proto institution, if you like, um, 
attempting to create something different, some alternative between the carceral system and sort of mob mentality or doing nothing. Um, mm -hmm. And people are just sort of not really into the harm prevention. It's very unglamorous. It looks like um, uh, reducing poverty, making sure that people have access to education, access to housing. It looks like cultivating, helping people cultivate um good romantic relationships you know romantic relationships and family relationships are you know humongous sites of violence <laughs> um yeah. and and yet they're, the th they're still the thing we strive for and there isn't really a good critique uh, apart from in quite niche yeah. academic fields of uh, of the of the romantic relationship and the family unit uh, and yet this is this is primarily i mean outside of war um, where violence happens and so it's extraordinary to me <laughs> that we're not investing in um, uh, cultivating good romantic relationships and good connections good family uh, structures or, or alternative family structures even it's very difficult to 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 be an alternative um, kinship structures at the moment the, you know the, the the way that the law works makes it very very difficult um, I think we need to allow small people what other people call children, but I'm going to call small people, uh, small humans, um, the freedom to move. I don't think they should have to stay in their home uh, if they don't want to. You know, I think they should have options and other places to go. Um, we need to give um, women and men, uh, all people, uh, alternative housing so that they don't have to rely on their single relationship for their security, which is often a relationship um, that also has violence. Uh, so there's tons of things I think we can do. Uh, you know, we used to have women's shelters, and I think under Reagan, a ton of these got shut down. And now there's very little you can do if you're experiencing intimate partner violence apart from prosecute. What's what's the alternative, you know? But if if there were, were places for you to go where you could be safe, funds available to keep yourself safe, uh, the world might look really different. Yeah, I agree. And going back to the sort of uh, frame that you had of uh, preventative one of the things that breaks my heart is, you know, let alone sex ed, like we don't have any like dating ed. Yeah. Like nobody teaches people how to like kindly ask others out or set boundaries or do different things. And it, it I mean, it just feels like we would prevent so much suffering if, if we taught that early on. Yes, um, absolutely. And even, you know, even our sort of like modern day, you know, I think what, you know, even in progressive circles, people would say that consent culture is probably the most advanced that we have. And I still think that's really shoddy, you know, because all yeah. that really tells you to do is say yes or no. Um, and that doesn't right. sort of account for the fact that we are multitudes and our preferences and our desires change. And also, um, you know, our, our desires and our preferences change over time. Um, I think we need to teach young people how to know what their emotions are what are the sensations inside of you what are your boundaries what do you want you know not just what do you not want but what do you want what do you seek how do you ask for that yeah. how do you deal with rejection and you know these are things that like seem like they should be obvious and yet most of us don't really discover these uh, unless we've gone through a very bumpy ride for about three decades and if you're lucky you sort of hit your 40s and you've got some sort of semblance of an idea of how to negotiate relationships with another person yeah <laughs> yeah i know it's 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 wild i you know one of the things that was uh, i was reminded of when you were talking about this is i remember you wrote a blog post a while back uh that stuck with me for some time mm. and I, i've thought about this on a number of occasions it was about relationship transitions mm. um and I'm curious if you can speak to that for just a minute. Relationship transitions. I think you are referring to, I wrote my, um, my relationship was, agreements, yeah. I think. Is that uh, right? So this was, um, this was basically as a contrast, at least in the way that I remember it, it was sort of in the contrast of the traditional language of breaking up. Yes. Um, or yeah, or other sorts of um, yeah. uh, language around those sorts of things. It was sort of, what does it look like? Um, you know, I know I've had exes that I still stay friends with. And so when I started thinking about it, the idea of, okay, this is a transition, what are change, what is changing and what is staying the same? Uh, it helped me kind of get through those times. I feel like a little bit easier. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So I think, um, I talked about, um, a commitment to relationship transitions rather than, uh, breakups. And, uh, mm. the sort of idea here is that, you know, breakups happen because we are territorialize, um, which we are sort of, we territorialize other humans you know you're either mine or you're not mine you're either with me or you're not with me uh, and so we sort of draw this sort of arbitrary line 
uh, around our relationships and you're either in or you're out. That's mostly only with romantic relationships, right? Uh, In in most other relationships, we have a bit of like flexibility. You know, you can um, adopt a child, for example. You can foster a child. Um, uh, Your friendships are the most flexible of all of these, I think. But in our romantic relationships, you're either in or you're out. Um, And so when you're out, it's a breakup and it's and it's often pretty socially violent and I don't mean in fists in terms of fists and 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 slaps I just mean your life changes you you have to move your home you you have to like cut some of your friends out of your life and and it's you know for a social primate this is a big deal um uh, to have those losses and so my commitment was to attempt to allow for for relationships to transition rather than for them to be sort of binary uh, on or off switches. Um, and that has been an extraordinary um, shift in my life, actually. I often talk about it as an sort of invisible form of wealth. It has given me an invisible form of sort of social wealth that I, I didn't even know existed before I had it. And I don't even know how to describe to other people. But once you start to allow people into your life in the way that they are able to show up, rather than according to the categories some random bunch of people told you is mm. acceptable everything starts to change. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way of looking at it. <laughs> it Hard uh, to do in practice. <laughs> it, it, oftentimes, but <laughs> su- such as so many things with, uh, <laughs> with, with many brains together, right? Or, or, mm-hmm. or, or, or just even two. All right. Um, well, so one of the things that I feel like is, um, uh, Apropos to the time, or or because of the time uh, that we have, uh, that I know that you've been working on, is this concept of not going back to normal, mm-hmm. and using this uh, this pandemic, these lockdowns, these sort of extraordinary circumstances, um, as a way to to change things up and uh, sort of reroute different uh, different uh, aspects of our society. Can you tell me a little bit more about that and sort of what areas you feel like are fruitful for not going back to normal? Yeah. Um, you know, I've always been a bit done with uh, the default way of doing things. And, uh, you know, I'm not really anti the past as much as seeking to be post, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think... I've, it's always sort of struck me as, you know, I think when we talk about anti things, it tends to be from a very critical lens, like, oh, I'm against this thing. I'm, I'm anti, you know, uh, this concept. And I'm I'm not in that camp. I am very grateful for all of the movements um, um, and sort of social structures uh, and sort of like um, social epochs uh, that we've had that have gotten us here. But I am largely unsatisfied. <laughs> I think we could do a lot better. Um, and so I've always been a bit sort of like, um, done with the normal, um, uh, I'm ready to think about, um, other ways of being. And the thing that has been extraordinary for me is that during this pandemic, I think our collective sense of what's possible has just been blast wide open. Uh, so, you know, uh, I can't, it's hard to even remember, but, you know, two years ago, let's say, you know, primarily when I talked to people, uh, outside of my social bubble or my infosphere, um, you know, people would think I was idealistic about what I was striving for. People would say, oh, there's no way for this to happen, or this XYZ is hardwired, this is just the way humans are. And I'd sort of say, well, you know, like, humans humans have been around for a, long, for a very short amount of time, and, 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 yet, and yet we've done all these different things. Like, don't you think it's possible that things could be different? And people just sort of didn't really seem to have uh, the internalized idea that the world could be really different. You know, and I think uh, in our lifetimes, we haven't seen it be very different until now and then suddenly we've had this sort of extraordinary um uh o- opening up of the possibility space so things that seemed impossible are suddenly now possible uh we've heard all of our lifetimes that it was impossible to house the homeless and yet suddenly we're taking hotels and housing the homeless for example you know and there's, there's there's tons yeah. of these things that have, that have suddenly um been revealed to be possible um, and so I think we're in a space where it's possible to at least leverage that little window open and think about like, okay, you've just seen the tiniest crack of how the world can change. Now, what do you want? Now, what do you want to do with this sort of like agency that you have seen? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that seems like a 
just a great tr prompt for everyone. I know I, I look at like a couple different things in my life and try to think about that. It, <laughs> uh, the one, the one for me right now is, uh, it's, I guess it's the, uh, it's the most privileged ones to have, but it's, uh, you know, I can work remotely. And so, mm -hmm. um, rethinking, you know, how I'm spending <clears throat> my time, where I'm spending my time with who I'm spending my time, um, and how that, you know, affects kind of, you know, what I'm producing in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and there's tons of these, you know, I've, I've heard people talking about like, oh, they've discovered that they are a different chronotype to the one that they thought they are, you know, a chronotype being the sort of rhythm on which, by which you live, um, your sleep, right. your day sleep cycle. Tons of people have discovered that actually they're sort of like semi-nocturnal and they could not have um, figured this out if they had not been able to work from home uh, or been furloughed. Um, tons of things like this, people discovering um, uh, different uh, sort of gender expressions because they're no longer having to dress professionally. Um, uh, people discovering much uh, better ways of organizing their day that allows them to manage their sort of hobbies and their health, self-care uh, self and their sort of productivity. Uh, you know, so uh, for the personal life, there's tons and tons of these um, and of course, for us, for society, there's there's a lot also. Yeah, I know one of the other very small examples, but I um, I love seeing it is the the little uh, street side, um, you know, parklets or whatever they call them, the mm -hmm. little extensions of the restaurants out <laughs> into the street, yeah. and yeah, those in the slow streets. I'm just like, I really hope they don't you know, this doesn't go back to normal afterwards because I just feel like it makes the city so much more vibrant and, and enjoyable to, to be. So Totally. I've had this um, sort of manifesto that I, I wrote a few years ago, which is called Garage City, where I was sort of hoping that everyone, you know, that people's private garages are, a, uh, are halfway between their private home and the public street and that we could all turn our garages into some sort of like wonderful uh, blossoming Paris city right under our feet where we sort of offer things for free to the world. Um, you know, and you could be, you could imagine sort of like, oh, my garage is open on a Saturday and I do dog sitting while I'm like, you know, writing my book. Uh, and, you know, and San Francisco specifically because these sort of private garages were um, uh, sort of built into the sort of city structure at a certain point in time in order to, I think, facilitate car purchasing. And so we've got tons of these. We could build a whole sort of parallel city. Anyway, I've been talking about it for a long time and then suddenly, lo and behold, Everywhere you go, people are selling bread in their garages, and you know oh, and it's wow. really wonderful. You know, like where I am in the Lower Haight, it's it's happening everywhere. I mean, my idea is that you do it for free. That you know, essentially, your garage would become your Burning Man camp, and that you put as much effort into your Burning Man camp, uh, you'd put as much effort into your your garage um, uh, public service as you do your Burning Man camp, and imagine how wonderful that would be. But, you know, it's, it great. is definitely possible that you can, uh, these small changes mean that people are just like, I don't care whether I've got the sort of zoning permission to sell bread. I'm just going to go ahead and do it. Yeah. <laughs> there is a little bit of a, uh, uh, a rebel spirit that you need to have in some of these now going back to normal. And I know um, it, it requires some courage. I know one of the ones, and I, you know, I feel a little bad because I didn't really participate in it, but it was interesting to notice that uh, how much it, it would require uh, courage was that rent strike uh, that was discussed and maybe still is being discussed. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you, you were you were a little bit involved in that or tangentially involved in that, is that right? Uh, uh, tangentially involved in that, I okay. yeah yeah. So I um, support the rent strike, and uh, you know uh, one of the things that felt really important to me in the rent strike was that this was a moment where. Um, so first of all, collective action is very important. Uh, but second of yeah. all, that landlords and, and tenants could come together uh, to to leverage collective action because, you know, everybody's being made to stay at home. Nobody can pay the bills. Uh, and so um, I own land in uh, England. Uh, just, you know, sorry, that makes it sound very grandiose. I, I have a small apartment. <laughs> um, and I wrote to my tenants and I was like, look, if you want to rent strike, I'm with you. Um, mm. Let's write to the banks and tell them that we, you know, are not going to pay and that uh, that they need to go to the government and and suggest that people need more support. Now, of course, in England, people got a lot of governmental support. Um, you know, there was eighty percent of salaries paid to stay at home. So, you know, England did a really good job of keeping its people alive. But in the US, we got a stimulus check of you know whatever it was, twelve hundred dollars <laughs> in like yeah. nine months. It's extraordinary. I can't I believe know. that people aren't out on the streets 
at tearing tearing the world to pieces, you know. Um, but my hope in the US, at least, was that you, that uh, te- that landlords and tenants would come together to demand action from the banks, uh, to demand action from the government. Um, unfortunately, that hasn't really happened. But at least people aren't being evicted, which is great. Yeah, and it is interesting that. Um, um, well, maybe not all those conversations happened. I know one of the things that I was uh, uh, somewhat happy about is while while it was uh, not the easiest of conversations, I know us and our landlord, it, there there was a very much an in, inv- inviting in energy, right? It was like, let's get all the things that we have out on the table and discuss this together and try to figure it out. And right. I feel like, yeah, the more that people could do that, kind of regardless of the relationship, whether it's a landlord or tenant or, or anything else, um, it seems to make things flow a little bit friendlier and better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, actually, the, 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 the place where I really had hoped for more more action was in the uh, labor unions. I really, you know, so when the Amazon workers were striking, I was so amazed to see this extraordinary um, sort of collective power come together. Uh, and then immediately just sort of devastated that um, ultimately people were striking for like, you know, a couple more cents an hour pay um, and not for something grander, you know, like this, the workers, the people, these are the people that are making the world go around, you know, like while the rest of us are all like quivering with fear at home, Amazon workers are delivering our like our stupidly overordered toilet paper, uh, you know, and yeah. for this moment in time, they, and, and maybe always, but specifically in this moment in time, had such power over us to say, we want better. Um, mm. And it didn't happen. And that, that was sort of like very, um, very sobering. Yeah. Yeah. And it's sad when some of these things haven't happened, but I feel like if nothing else, um, I am hopeful that some of these Overton windows have been opened. Yes, absolutely. Unfortunately, my fear is, um, my fear is that our Overton windows may have shifted. Uh, and yet we have learned that we did not shift our Overton window. It was shifted by an emergency. Um, and that's very different from we figured our shit out and we got together and we built a better world. Um, and yet we have yet to, to learn how to do that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I think that's very true. And I also feel like so much of life is kind of uh, setting things up for uh, the, the right luck to happen. And I, you know, it's, I, I, I would hesitate to call this luck, but, but perhaps <laughs> opportunity to arise and, um, you know, for what I've heard in, in some sort of other organizing circles is, you know, some of these things just take a very long time to get set up to work. And then you try to find the right opportunities to yes. you know, have them catalyze and, and actually come together. So, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering, are there any uh, topics around any of these things that we've talked about today that uh, maybe we didn't get to that you feel like would be interesting for us to talk about? Um, let's have a think. I mean, God, I could blather on for hours. Um we didn't oh. talk about yeah go on oh no go ahead um we didn't talk about uh, we didn't talk too much about beyond return but that's okay uh, i'm not sure that we should um okay. we didn't talk about i i specifically don't want to be the spokesperson um for beyond return but i'd be happy to talk about it um we didn't talk too much about alternative justices which i think um is a pretty fascinating area especially in today's culture, in today's cancel culture, um, mm-hmm. uh, and as we um, think about like how do we go forward differently, um, the other thing that I thought, I think I, ca- I cast my eye on you, you in the prompt. You had said something like, "How does neuroscience?" Um, yeah, yeah, that was the one I was going to bring. Oh, up. okay, yeah, go yeah, ahead. We'll, yeah, we're just talking a little meta right now, and so yeah, let's just mm-hmm. grab a couple of these and then I'll ask you. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, cool. I think, um, yeah. the thing I thought about was how does neuroscience, um, play into like what's going on right now? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. Oh, and just, uh, before I, before we jump back into sort of uh, real time, um, did you end up giving any thought to, uh, like a call to action, uh, for any of these topics? Oh God. Well to give a shout out I mean, I, I, <laughs> my call to, my calls to action always so. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're always a rallying cry, but in the end, people are like, that's not what I wanted, Serena. I just wanted to know where to donate. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, I, had a, I, uh, 
Yeah, you know, we're, we're trying to get a little more creative here. So I don't know yeah. if there is any volunteering opportunities or, you know, even like, you know, we just need to hire a specific person for this role if you know anybody, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, God, there's like, you know, <clears throat> I mean, you can ask me again in a, in a proper way. But like the, yeah. the, the, the fact is, is that almost everything I do is uh, un, unpaid and and done by volunteers. And uh, so there's like tons of room for people who want to lean in. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, we are also in the middle of a um, fundraising mission for District Commons. Um, nice. Uh, so I can definitely um, pump that. I don't know what's the best way. Uh, c- will there be a way to s- post a link on the blah yeah, blah? Okay. All right. So I've heard you mention um, a movement as part of this not going back to normal uh, called Beyond Return. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, Beyond Return is a collective of individuals who um, are spread all across the globe, many of whom had been sort of operating and collaborating uh, with each other for a long time, uh, but who came together in this sort of moment of unity at the beginning of the pandemic back in uh, March to sort of say, like, look, everybody thought that a bunch of things wasn't weren't, wasn't possible and now those things have been revealed to be possible there's this open skepticism about the state of the economy and the way that we value the economy over life rather than recognize that the economy uses life and uh, all these these extraordinary things are happening how do we lean into this moment and really try and shift our sense of what's um possible uh what what like shift shift uh, the sort of societal level of common sense uh over the next sort of 10 years and so it's really just a sort of cultural shift endeavor uh beyond return aims to to sort of move the the dialogue window to much more diverse futurisms um and so that's been really wonderful we we mostly sort of run lectures and and um event series discussions book clubs um, and we have a sort of lovely expertise bank and a set of like um, research groups that are all working uh, autonomously on various different sort of possibility spaces about how the world could be. Uh, we have a set of, I think, 10 uh, aspirations for the world that we decided were the sort of bare minimum that we should hope for before we sort of are satisfied with uh, what we've done with the world. Um and uh, the research group sort of look at the different ways in which we could possibly get to any of those aspirations. Um, and that's been really wonderful. And, uh, you know, obviously, now that we all live online, um, that's allowed a really sort of diverse group of people to be involved in this sort of futurisms project. Um, and uh, it's been really, really lovely and really rewarding. That's fantastic. Is there one of those that uh, you can give us as an example? Uh, yeah, so I can say, um, you know, so one of the so one of the tracks is around justice. That, that there are sort of like um, a ten different aspirations, and they're pretty like broad. You know, they cover um, the way we treat uh, other life forms, um, uh, and so on and so forth. And the, the sort of research groups and the, the expertise banks um, focus on those different tracks. So um we've had a really one we've had two that have been really sort of fascinating recently one was beyond prisons um uh, and the other is beyond speciesism uh, and these are a series of events that sort of take you through different approaches to to uh to these um fields of study and they ask the question under what circumstances would this research actually transform society what would it actually look like to stop holding humans as um, the sort of most important form of life um, and to talk to people who are like exploring in this realm. And it's been extraordinary actually to, <laughs> to, um, uh, to find the people working on this stuff. So the first uh, event for Beyond uh, Speciesism was Jonathan Keats, who spoke, spoke to us about all sorts of extraordinary things about phytodemocracy, where you sort of include plants in uh, democratic decision-making um, uh, the next one we have is on uh, the rights of extraterrestrial life. Um, then we have the rights wow. of uh, AI. And then we have the rights of plant life. And then the rights of robots, you know. And so there's all sorts of intelligent forms of being uh, and life that um, are going to be in our futures. And we, 
we either going to we either going to carry on as we have been, which is probably terrible, or we've got to build something else. But if we're going to build something else, we've got to get on and fucking do it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so these these sort of um, event series and collective endeavors are supposed to like help us not only as individuals uh, but also as a collective uh, shift our thinking into into uh, how do we how do we not just be anti this? How do we not be like you know, against the sort of six mass extinction, but how do we be pro diverse life forms? That's fantastic. Uh, if people want to find out more about um, uh, Beyond Return, is that something they can just Google or is there a specific uh, place they can go to find out more about that? Yes, you can go to beyondreturn.org. Uh, you can go to the Beyond Return Facebook group, uh, which is where all the events are listed. Uh, and, you know, we let sort of people um, have sort of asynchronous uh, dialogue in the Facebook group also. Um, and, you know, if you're interested in, in joining the sort of internal workings of the uh, organization, you can reach out to me. Fantastic. Well, we'll make sure to put those links in the show notes. All right. Um, one of the things that I, I thought that you might have a unique insight on uh, in relation to this is, uh, especially when we're talking about Overton windows and, and people sort of dramatically changing the way that they're thinking about this, these things, uh, how, does, how does kind of our modern understandings of neuroscience play into this? Are there any lessons that we can take or anything that we can reflect on in the light of that? Um, I think, you know, uh, one of the things that I think is really important to recognize right now is that... Um, Human brains are, are well. I'll say I'll I'll I'll, I'll phrase it differently. Our, our best current thinking is that brains are largely prediction engines um, that um, sort of take our previous experience and um, build models of the world and compare the incoming sense data with our internal predictive models. <clears throat> and really, what we are experiencing when we feel like we're sensing uh, when we're, we're sort of seeing something is 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 the discrepancy between our predictions and what's actually coming in through the data and what this means is um the sort of error between what we've predicted and uh the data that's coming in um sort of requires uh metabolic effort and so what we seek is a predictable world and unfortunately that can be predictably bad uh, as well as predictably good. But what's really difficult for a human is an unpredictable world. And uh, what we've seen happen in the last year has really uh, been extraordinarily inspiring and horrifying at the same time. Um, mm-hmm. But certainly what is the, what is true is that it's been very unpredictable. And I think, you know, if I think about where the horror for me really is in this whole thing, it's that been that almost all of our governments have kept us in perpetual uncertainty rather than just telling us, hey, this is going to be around for a long time. Your life is going to change for about a year. Um, this is this is the best way to hunker down. You know, we could have done this completely differently. For those of us sort of in the know, I think we've all known that this was going to be at least six months to a year and a half. Um, yeah. uh, but most people have been just waiting on the like three weeks to six week uh, timeline and that is extraordinarily stressful uh, for a yeah. human being um, and I, I, I worry about the sort of long-term effects of that kind of stress on an entire population um, you know we could you could have imagined this been really different you know our governments could have said you know it's gonna be a year uh, why don't you take this opportunity we're gonna pay you to stay at home take this opportunity to study for a year <laughs> take this opportunity right. to do therapy the therapy that you never had time for for a year mm-hmm. uh, take this time to work on your relationships learn a new language, and we would have all come out of this better off. But instead, we were all going to come out really very stressed and damaged. Um, and I think that it's really just a terrible <laughs> crime against humanity, honestly. Well, I certainly hope we uh, learn some lessons for the uh, what I hope is not a future pandemic, but <laughs> what certainly will be likely future disruptive events, um, if we can learn. I know one of the uh, concepts that I personally struggle or it's difficult to work through is the concept of acceptance mm-hmm. and that uh, at a societal level, both acceptance and also just being honest to one's citizens, uh, even when it's scary to do so and having yes. that courage uh, is so important. And I hope we learn yeah. some of those lessons. Yeah. I mean, I hope so too, but I honestly, I haven't seen much public commentary at all about uh, why this got so bad, you know? Um, 
there's really been very little about like why are we living in such close proximity with uh, other animals when we know that these diseases can be transmitted? Why, um, why do we not have a more adaptable economy that can survive if we need to go on pause for three months? Why do we, um, why are we so dependent on global travel that even though we know that we should stop moving, we just cannot do it? Uh, and so I think those questions have completely not been asked, and, and I. I don't think I have much confidence that they even will be asked for for some time to come. Uh, in which case, I think it's going to be very difficult to learn from this. I hope we start asking more of those questions. <laughs> oh, so, just quickly, I'm going to pause because I think that we're probably going to stitch this back uh, mm-hmm. earlier in the episode. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm going to branch into the alternative justice stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, one of the aspects of kind of reinventing justice uh, or, or addressing some of the shortcomings is finding other ways of um, uh, sort of practicing justice or having justice systems, mm-hmm. uh, some from more community-based perspectives. And I know you've been involved in kind of the alternative justice um, uh, projects and movements. Can you tell me a little bit about that and, and where that's uh, going? Yeah, Um so alternative justices for me came from a sort of lifetime of just frustration is not quite the right word, but, you know, despair <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that the way that we see harm in this world is, is binarized into, you know, the harm, the harmed and the harmer. Um, and, um, and also a sort of failure to recognize that our demonization of those who perpetuate harm or participate in violence or sexual assault often means that we're demonizing those who are closest to us. You know, um, uh, the data tells us that we're most likely to be hurt um, physically or sexually by by people we know, very close to our home, you know, geographically uh, and spatially. Uh, and yet um, we sort of have big question marks about why, you know, why are there not more prosecutions? Why, are there, you know, and so on and so forth. And, and the fact is, is that most people don't want to prosecute someone they love. Um, they 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 want a different solution, and that solution doesn't exist. Um, and so, alternative justice is about providing some alternative that that lies between doing nothing and um, using the carceral system. Uh, and it is an abolitionist feminist movement. So, um, uh, carceral feminism is a feminism that um, that says that you know, um, if you have been hurt as a as a woman. Uh, the way to um, to deal with that is through the carceral system. That's that's what carceral feminism is. And abolitionist feminism says, you know, that that uh, the carceral system and cancel culture and all punitive measures are an extension of patriarchy. And if we really want to get beyond patriarchal systems, we have to we have to behave and operate differently, and we need to build those systems. Um, and uh, it's been an extraordinary gift to be part of this movement uh, and I want to sort of pay credence to the extraordinary people uh, and bodies that came before me you know lots of this stuff came from black and brown and indigenous communities who could not use the state because the state was as dangerous to them as the person um, who uh, had committed their their harm um, uh, and and I think we're in a time right now where we're really seeing this come to the forefront as we're as we're seeing, you know, following Me Too, just how many people are going through uh, sexual assault and violence and just how many of us are perpetuating that also. Um, And that we can't just cancel everyone. We can't just incarcerate everyone. There wouldn't be anyone left. And so we have to to build something else. And so it's been really wonderful to be part of uh, building this over the last sort of five years. Uh, And this particular moment in time feels like we're right on the sort of like cusp of the wave yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, so, with this, uh, does this fall into you were sort of uh, um, describing a binary of kind of like pre and post harm? Uh, so, is this on kind of like the post harm side? Is that primarily where this alternative justice is? Uh, we do both. So, I try and spend, um, you know, so um, in the prevention side, what I try and do is help communities build and prepare for when harm happens. You know, harm is not something you can avoid. 
but you can minimize the, the sort of needless suffering. Uh, and if you're best prepared for it, you know how to respond, you know how to, you've done the preparatory work to try and prevent, you know, you've taught everyone about boundaries, you've taught everyone how to communicate and everybody understands uh, that other people's um, values and desires are just as important as their own. You've done all that. Okay, there's still going to be some violence and you still need to have a response. Uh, and the response is really important. So what's very clear to me is that often the way the world responds to people who've experienced harm or you know victim survivors in traditional language um, is almost as bad as the initial harm people feel let down they feel isolated they feel abandoned they feel shamed they feel cast out um, you know um, their their sort of trauma responses are um, a social death if you like uh, and so the way that the community responds is just um, a secondary trauma <laughs> that's really, really difficult. And so often what I'm doing is like mitigating that secondary level, um, which is uh, tricky. Yeah, it's tricky. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, I can imagine because, you know, one of the things that's, and this this crosses a, a bunch of our, you know, different topics here, but there's this concept of a Chesterton fence. Uh, are you familiar with that? No. What's the Chesterton fence? It's and I, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, but it's a uh, it's a bit of a parable where uh, somebody owned a farm. I think his name was Chesterton in this example, and uh, there is this random fence in his field, and he's like, "This is silly." And so, you know, he's like, "Why does this fence exist?" And as soon as he pulls up the fence, now he's got rabbits in all of his you know garden, right? And so it was this fence that was there that you know everybody thought it you know he thought it was silly, but it was really serving a purpose mm-hmm. uh, that nobody really knew what it was, and so. Um, I'm, I'm curious if there is ways in which um, you think about making sure that we don't lose any kind of like learned wisdom in our justice systems as broken as they are mm-hmm. while reinventing that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I'm not like I'm not an advocate of burning things down, you know, like uh, I think that's um, I understand why people want to burn systems to the ground and, you know, like. I consider myself an abolitionist, and uh, but you know, people, um, a prison abolitionist. What does that uh, term mean when you, yeah, yeah? Uh, prison abolitionist is, you know, it feels, I like, see, I see. It feels like the most um, misunderstood term of our <laughs> moment. Uh, it really means so people are always like, oh God, if you tear down the prisons, everyone's just going to go around murdering everyone. That's not what prison abolition means. Prison abolition means changing the underlying social structure that necessitate prisons as the, as the solution. So it means getting to a world where you don't need prisons. That's what prison abolition means. Um, so it's very nuanced, right? And that, that's really what transformative justice is. It's about transforming the underlying conditions that led to a harm, such that that harm won't happen again. Not just the individual relationships, but the society in which that harm transpired. And that's really stunning it's a stunning concept and and you know it should be what we're all striving for i mean is there anyone who doesn't want to just change the world that led to a harm in the first place um uh, and so um yeah so that's 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 what sort of prison abolition uh means but i don't think that means that we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. um there's lots of extraordinary things about our current legal system that are very interesting um and uh you know there's there's like definitely uh wisdoms in there um that we you know we don't want to lose yeah i know one of the ones that i have been a little curious about there is, <laughs> uh, you know there's there's clearly ways that our justice system can kind of be like weaponized right so you have like mm-hmm. big corporations that use kind of their power and influence to, like drag out court cases you have these slap lawsuits mm-hmm. and all this kind of stuff um have you given any thoughts to how one prevents those sorts of dynamics arising when reinventing justice systems? Um, I mean, I, you know, I don't call it the injustice system without reason. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I there's like all sorts of elements about the legal system that I think are really just fascinating, nuanced, and so elegant. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, um, in, in practice, it is often an escalatory uh, and an and, and, and antagonistic stance, um, and it's very expensive, <laughs> and it and it simplifies harm, um, and it doesn't do anything uh, to prevent the harm from happening in the first place. And so, you know, um, uh, you know, when you engage with a, a lawyer, um, 
it just elevates the, the sort of antagonism that's already there. And, you know, I think divorce lawyers are like one of the most sort of like classic examples of this, you know, like you're already in an emotionally difficult situation. Mm-hmm. You're separating from someone that you have so much tied up with emotionally and you're in your most vulnerable position. And then here you have someone's being like, oh, you know, you should be fighting for this. This is what other people fight for. And this is what you're, you know, uh, and, uh, and instead what you really want is someone to bring you together and get you back on the same page, you know? Uh, and so um, I think there's tons of wisdom uh, in the legal system. I don't, uh, I'm definitely not trying to tear it all down. Alternative justices is about exploring alternatives uh, that can exist in parallel. Uh, I do think privatized prison systems and the prison industrial complex renders our system completely obsolete. Renders what system? Our, our current legal system. You know, uh, wh- like whilst the, the fact that those dynamics are at play from private prisons makes it completely, uh, yeah. uh, or removes the justice from the system. Is that? Yeah, that I mean, it just makes it, it laughable. You know, the the yeah. way the way that it that it operates right now. It's it's so far away from a system that uh, distributes justice that I don't even think I you know I personally am not someone who thinks that like reform is going to get us to the world we want I think reform is very important in harm reduction but I don't think we're going to build an, an elephant from a tiger you know <laughs> um, sure yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense and that's where you know I feel it is it's so interesting to uh, paint these different alternative visions uh, because it's the only way we get to them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I definitely yeah. not, you know, <clears throat> um, you know, inside I'm pretty much a pessimist. I, I think I I behave like a like an optimist or an idealist, but I'm internally pretty skeptical. And you know, I'm definitely not saying that these these sort of community based um, systems or that prefigurative uh, explorations of alternative modes are better. They could very much be worse but the point is we need to try different things um you know if you think about sort of like genetic evolution something that's really important in genetic evolution is is mutations if you don't have mutations you don't have random shifts and changes you end up in a sort of like genetic cul-de-sac and all sorts of like weird things start happening and i think the same is true of culture when you have a completely dominant system and you stop trying different things you stop learning yeah 100 Mm percent (laughs) <laughs> that's a great point well i i <laughs> here's to some uh so, some positive mutations and yeah <laughs> fingers crossed i hope we yeah i hope we get to shake things up for the better <laughs> so uh before we uh before we go today i just want to invite um if there's any ways that that you think that <coughs> our listeners can uh, help out with any of these causes uh i'd love to hear if you have any thoughts Oh yeah, that's that's a great uh, a great question. Um, well, I'm going to start with my most abstract and ideal, which is, you know, I think my call to action is for everybody to think about who they are, why they're the way they are, and who they could be. And um, that's that's a lifelong practice. But you know, you can start with yourself. You can start in your relationships. You can start in your community. You can start in your business, um, and all the way up to um, us as a species, as a collective species. And I think those questions are difficult <laughs> and really, yeah. really fucking important. Um, now that's not very easy to do, but that's, that's really what I think is the most important thing to do if we're going to reclaim our, our futures or, or even persist as a species um, without just uh, many decades of suffering. After that, I would yeah. say participate. You know, a lot of the things I operate in are um, volunteer-based um, and participatory. Um, and, you know, there's tons, tons and tons of ways that people can show up, um, whether it's in the communal living world, whether it's in Beyond Return, whether it's in Alternative Justices, whether it's in um, uh, the Second Life Project, which is our, our community of returning citizens. These are all almost entirely um, volunteer uh, built um, and so there's tons of space and you know uh, these are also spaces that are centered around uh, collective autonomy and so uh, by dint of joining any of these projects you inherently change them because they change shape to have you in and so um, you know I really encourage anyone who wants to participate in any of these to come and uh, lean in um, or if you want to start your own endeavor um, that's something that I've been working on trying to help 
facilitate is like how do people in other places build projects like this that suit and represent their community so if you are interested in that you can reach out and book a little donation based um, time slot with me and then practically speaking uh, we are we're in the middle of a fundraiser push for the end of the year uh, we being district commons uh, which is the nonprofit that supports most of the work that I do and uh, we would love your support um, in supporting autonomous spaces and experimental commoning uh, for 2021 Fantastic. Where would people find that? Um, I can I can share a link with you, but uh, I think if you just go to districtcommons.org, districtcommons.org, and at the bottom of the page there's a, a donate link. Uh, but we have a GoFundMe open right now, and we also have uh, some corporate matching happening uh, and a direct PayPal links. So you can sort of donate in any way you like. We love time uh, donations and we love financial donations. Fantastic. We'll make sure to include a link in the notes as well. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Zarina. Yeah, you're uh, welcome. We will, yeah. Super fun. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, uh, take care and here's to uh, building some brighter futures together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>